Hello and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work and how scientists are studying them. In episode eight, we looked at the neuroscience of love, from hormones and neurochemicals to why breakups hurt so much and why having love in your life is so important. But as Anna said in that episode, that love doesn't have to stop at romantic love. The love we have for our friends and family can have huge, important impacts on our brains, as can our love for our pets. Now, I'm going to confess up front that I grew up with cats, not dogs, but I can appreciate that the relationships my friends and family have with their dogs are extra special. And that's what we'll be exploring this week. Our love for dogs, their love for us, and how important those relationships can be to our brains. With that in mind, I want to introduce you to Beth and Emma. And just a quick note before we get to know them, this episode does include discussions of trauma suffered by both. Now Beth is your quintessential animal lover. She's got hens... Rabbits and even rescues pigeons. Tell me about the pigeons. Okay, the pigeons. (laughs) For quite a few years now, I've ended up looking after a lot of pigeons. How many? How many do you reckon it is now? Thirty something. I've no idea. At one point, there were nine in the living room. (laughs) But often, they're babies that have fallen out of the nest and um, needed someone to look after them, basically. But the most important animal in Beth's life is still Emma. Emma is a collie cross whippet. She's 13, it's sort of an estimate, she's 13. She is mostly black with white paws and a white sort of chest and belly. She's going very distinguished white on her um, muzzle and has some fantastic eyebrows and massive ears. (laughs) She is very, very distinguished. She's lovely. Very, very relaxed. Very, very affectionate. She's a bit of a wimp, so, you know, she's scared of my hens and rabbits and things. (laughs) Yeah, no killer instinct whatsoever, but that's quite, quite charming, really. And how did you get her? Through a rescue, actually. I sort of have wanted a dog for my entire life, and then I had... I went through a trauma and I was diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress and moved back in with my parents. I was very, very depressed and didn't really make any of my own decisions. I wasn't well enough. And then I remember once we were in the car and my dad said to me, well, why don't you get a dog? You know, you've got the time and stuff. And I was a bit like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. But... I found her on a rescue and it said, um, it was a very blurry picture, but you could see a really big ears, which appealed to me. Um, So they drove her over from York and the idea was that we would meet her, have a little walk and then decide whether we were going to, you know, keep her or not. And we got like up to the corner, you know, of our road and we're like, yeah, we're going to keep her. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're inseparable. Spend just two minutes in a room with them both and it's obvious that Beth is devoted to Emma. And Emma is devoted to Beth. 
Although, if she likes you, she'll come up and give you some really good licks on your legs, arms, wherever she can reach, really, as I can personally attest. Hello, Emma. Straight for the the licking. She is is very licky in a lovely way. Yeah, she's super affectionate. We'll dig more into Emma, Beth and how they changed each other's lives a bit later. But first, how long have humans had close relationships with dogs? And how did those relationships start in the first place? So there is no other animal, Ava, with which people have had a longer relationship. That's Clive Wynne. He's a professor of psychology at Arizona State University, where he directs the Canine Science Collaboratory, which is dedicated to studying all aspects of the dog-human relationship. Dogs came into being at the worst part of the last ice age, at the last glacial maximum, the most miserable part of human history. But that's when we started into what was at first surely a very tentative, uncertain maybe even reluctant relationship with certain tribes of wolves who started hanging around us and scavenging on leftover food that we produced. And what started so hesitantly during the last ice age, once the ice age came to an end, it became tremendously rich. And there's a simple reason for that. I always thought when I first learned about the Ice Age in high school, I thought, oh, well, thank goodness we don't live in the Ice Age. Everybody must have been so happy when the Ice Age came to an end. But actually, that isn't true. That isn't true because our ancestors had lived for hundreds of thousands of years during Ice Ages and knew how to survive in them. We are primarily visual animals. So hunting in the kind of very open environments that existed in the Ice Age, open, you know, tundra, and if there are forests in cold climates, you don't have much undergrowth, so you can see through the forest. We human beings are very good at that. But then the climate warms up, the tundra is replaced by forest, the open forests are replaced by dense forests with thick undergrowth. Well, now human beings are completely stuffed because... We cannot detect prey in these forests. Our vision is blocked by all the undergrowth. Even if you do detect something, we cannot easily chase after it because we're too big. We have to get a cutting implement and cut our way through the rainforest. So we would have starved to death if there hadn't been these little, much smaller animals, much more dependent on their noses than on vision, able to run through the undergrowth. And yet those animals had to already be dogs. You cannot go hunting with a wolf. If you were to go hunting with a wolf, the wolf would find something and eat something. And he might, if he loved you, he might come back a few days later. You would have nothing from this. The crucial thing about hunting with dogs is that dogs are motivated to chase things. They can detect things with their noses. They can run through the undergrowth. They can run prey to ground. But then having run it to ground, they cannot kill it. They're not strong enough to finish the job. And so they make a noise and the men and boys come running up and finish the job. And so you get this partnership, which is the beginning, you know, this is 12 plus thousand years ago. Not only were cats not domesticated, cattle were not domesticated. There wasn't even domesticated wheat and barley. I mean, dogs are not just the first domesticated animal. They're the first domesticated anything. They made themselves indispensable, which I think is probably when the affectionate connection started too. And then since then, all the changes in human life over the last 12,000 years 
And yet at every stage of the way, dogs have found a way to make themselves indispensable. How do you study that kind of relationship looking so far back? The best evidence we have that at least some people really cared about certain dogs a long, long time ago is that people on occasion buried dogs with tremendous care. And so last summer I was traveling around Northern Europe having a look at these. And there's one in Germany where two people were buried together with a puppy and the care with which that was done, right? I mean, if, when a dog dies, when an animal dies around the village, you have to stick it in the ground because otherwise it's going to get smelly or it's going to attract predators and goodness knows what. But burying an individual with care is a very different operation. And we see people doing that as far back as 15,000 years ago. And so that that's a strong hint that the people at that time, when that puppy died, they were really, really sad. And they put as much effort into burying some of their dogs as they put into burying their human family. It's very clear when we walk around and we see people with their dogs, if you have your own dog, that we love our dogs very, very much, like a member of the family often. Yeah, yeah. Is there then evidence that dogs return the favour and love us back? I mean, when I come home, I live here with my wife and I have a young adult son and his girlfriend. We all live together and we all get along very well. But when I come home and I say, hi, I'm home, you know, if I'm lucky, there'll be a grunt from my wife, whatever corner of the house she's in. And the, the, the young people might might say something. They might say, hi, hey, what's going on? But my dog is crazy thrilled to see me again. I mean, as I say, I think you are entitled to trust the evidence of your senses. When you come home, you know that your dog loves you. Your dog will stop whatever he's doing and he'll run as fast as he can from wherever he is in the house to be with you again because that is enormously important to him. Now, we can pick, as a scientist, we've taken the experience of coming home to your dog and we've turned it into an experiment. You can do that. And um, so what kind of experiments can you do with a dog to try and identify, or to, I guess to try and quantify that love in a way? We got volunteers. We asked them to leave their dogs home alone all day, leave your dog with no food all day. And then we set up in their garage a choice. Here's the food. Here's your beloved human. And so we open the door. We have an assistant open the door between the main part of the house and the garage. And we see what would a dog prefer? Eight dogs out of 10, even though they haven't eaten all day long, eight dogs out of 10, it's more important to them to be greeting their owner than to be eating. So there's one super simple test. Does your dog love you or would your dog rather be eating? And the answer is, if you set it up properly, the dog, most dogs, sadly, we had two out of 10 who preferred the food, which is a little bit sad. But um, most dogs would rather be greeting their owner than actually eating. That reminds me of that famous study on attachment with, I don't know if it was chimpanzees, but on some kind of monkey or primate where they took a baby, they could either hug a soft, fluffy mother and have no food or hug um, a steel mother and have food so that's really that's really interesting so actually that need for connection and and warmth is really really strong oh yeah yeah yeah. so Ava you're talking about experiments that were done in the 1940s and 50s on monkeys by Harry Harlow which have made their way into textbooks 
we would never consider doing an experiment that cruel on dogs. Mm. But there is a much later development of that kind of study, which is called the Ainsworth Strange Situation Test. And this is a test that's carried out on human, small, very small children, children less than two years old. And you do not rear them in a cage, <laughs> but you do have the mother or other caregiver bring the child to an unfamiliar room. And then you leave the child alone with a stranger and you see how a human child is discomforted, is stressed by being left alone with mm. a stranger but is reassured, is comforted when the mother comes back. So that's why it's a standard test of attachment. Mm. Well, we and others have done this with dogs. You bring a, a dog with their special person to an unfamiliar room and you do exactly what has been done many, many times with children in this strange situation test. You separate the dog, you have the dog alone with a stranger, you see just the same kind of reactions. You see the dog is stressed to be left alone, stressed to be left with a stranger, but is reassured and comforted when their beloved human comes back in. And so in the same way that we measure attachment, loving connection in small children and their parents, so too we see the same reaction of dogs with their human caregiver. So another fairly simple way of measuring this bond of emotional connection between dogs and their people. And when that relationship with their special human is severed or damaged, it requires healing to move forward, as Emma experienced. She was very, very anxious when we got her and afraid of men. She'd been mistreated by a man. It took a year for her to be able to go for a walk with my dad and be off the lead. She was afraid of being hit. She had a broken rib. And at first, if she was ever sick, she would like go and shake in a corner because she thought she was going to be in trouble. So I had to learn to be very sort of slow and gentle and not really... Ra I still d would never really raise my voice very much to her because it worries her so much. We really like to go walking together and that's... That's been a really big part of our friendship, really, I think. When I got her, I wasn't really able to leave the house by myself at all. But once I had a dog, you know, I had to. So we'd go on very short walks and I got more and more confident. And now I don't even think about it, you know. She wasn't cuddly at all when I got her. She used to like to be very near you, but not touching. But now she likes to snuggle up to you. So when Emma snuggles up to Beth, she can feel that Emma loves her. But what does the science say about what's going on in the brain of a dog when they're with their special, beloved human? There is a, a, a researcher at uh, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, Gregory Burns. And he and his group have trained dogs to lie really, really still in MRI scanners. So an MRI scanner is this machine that can produce these amazingly detailed images of whatever part of the human body you pointed at. And if you point it at the brain, you get a fantastically detailed picture of the brain. If you then have your individual think about something then you can actually pick up the changes in activity. You can see different parts of the brain lighting up, right? Now, that is called functional MRI, 
And that has been restricted to our own species, to human beings, because only human beings can have it explained to them that in order for this to work, they have to keep their head perfectly still. Mm. If you were to take a typical dog and try and get him to lie down in one of these scanners, he's never going to keep still enough for this to work. Mm. But Burns and his colleagues have done exactly that. They train dogs to lie perfectly still in the scanner. And then they show them signs. You show them one sign that means you're about to receive a piece of sausage. And you show them a different sign that means your beloved human is just around the corner, is just about to appear. And so now you can look inside the brain at the brain's reward centers and you can see, does the reward center light up to both of these possibilities? And does it light up equally to both of these possibilities? Or what's the, what's the relativities? What they found was, firstly, the majority of pet dogs, not again, not all of them, which must be very, very sad for the individuals whose dogs are in the minority here. Mm. But most dogs, their brain reward centers, nucleus accumbens, lights up more to the expectation of their beloved human appearing than it does to the possibility of receiving a piece of sausage. So that's part one of the study. Part two of the study is that they then let the dogs out and they give the dogs a straightforward choice. No longer lying still in this scanner. They're just in a big room, given an obvious choice. And the dog is uh, free to choose. Would you rather now run to your owner, your special human, or would you rather run to this bowl of food? And again, most dogs choose their owner. And most interestingly, there's a very tight correlation between the relative activation of the brain reward center and the relative choice of the human being. Ah. So Burns's people have been able to show that, that this preference for a human over food is programmed in the, in the dog's brain. That must have been because I attended an MRI scan of a taxi driver for our episode oh, yeah. on memory, which right. came out earlier. And that's loud. I mean, it's a really noisy environment. Training a dog to stay still for as long as it takes to do those scans must have been really challenging. Well, so absolutely. So uh, to be fair, there is one part of the analysis which is fiendishly difficult. Mm. And that stems from the fact that they did not only use dogs of one breed. Dog heads and dog brains vary in size much, much more than human brains do, right? I mean, from the smallest female human to the largest male human, I don't know what the difference is, but the difference in brain size is not tremendous. And the difference in brain structure and layout is very small. Whereas different breeds of dogs have anything from like a walnut to a grapefruit, you know, a much yeah. bigger and different dog skulls lead to different dog brain uh, layouts. You know, the shapes are quite different. Really? So that made that much more. That was that was an additional element that made that very challenging. One of the things we talked about in our previous love episode was the role of different sort of hormones and chemical messengers. Do dogs use sort of the same basic blueprint in terms of the chemistry of love? So, so people have started looking for the hormonal aspects of love in dogs. And in particular, there's this one hormone, oxytocin, which is stimulated by particularly intense loving contact between between people. And people have started studying that in the dog-human relationship, particularly a Japanese research group 
And they have a beautiful setup where they can not only bring dogs and people together in a laboratory, which is something I do, but in addition, they have the whole chemistry set type laboratories so that they can take spit or urine samples from the people, from the dogs, and measure the levels of hormones in their bodies while they're interacting. And what they find is that when a dog and a person who have a strong bond come together and make eye contact, then the levels of the hormone oxytocin spike on both sides of the relationship. So you're getting a hormonal signal of the love from both the dog and the human being. And actually, that reminded me of something Beth described too, when she and Emma catch each other's eyes across a room. We have lots of moments of eye contact throughout the day, whether we're on a walk or I walk into a room, and it's like very, a very like fleeting but special moment, you know, like it's not just sort of functional. She's not just wanting to be around me because I feed her and walk her and that kind of thing. Like if I'm upset, she she looks after me. Like if, if I'm ever crying, she'll come and and comfort me. And that is what she's doing. Like she wants me to, to be okay. One of the things we often value in dogs is their friendliness. But as they descended from famously unfriendly wolves, how did that change come about? Some of my collaborators, in particular Bridget von Holt at Princeton University, who's a behavioural geneticist, we have uncovered three genes that appear to have mutated in the journey from wolf to dog. All of our dogs are descended from wolves. In the journey from wolf to dog, there were three important mutations that make dogs much friendlier and more willing to form emotional connections with members of other species than wolves are. So the really interesting thing is, these genes, if you or I had mutations in these genes, these three genes are among the two dozen genes that contribute to a very rare developmental disorder called Williams-Buren syndrome. Williams-Buren syndrome is its deletion of a chunk of a chromosome. Two dozen or more genes are lost. So it has a lot, so many genes lost, you've got a lot of different effects. You have strange facial structure. You have cardiac issues. You have a whole bunch of things. But the single most striking thing about Williams-Buren syndrome and the whole reason why we went and looked in that part of the dog genome is that people with Williams syndrome are extremely friendly, extremely friendly. They, I have seen them described as like the friendliest people at a party, at a cocktail party. Um, There's a whole issue that when they're young, they have no, you cannot teach them the concept of stranger danger. They only imagine that every stranger must be a friend. And establishing a loving relationship with a friendly, caring dog can be hugely beneficial, both for the dog and for the person. Yeah, so I was um, stalked and raped um, when I left university. And uh, that was put then, following that, that was like the worst period of my life. And I felt very, very alone and unable to connect with people, really. Um, I was also incredibly anxious and needy 
as was she when I got her, and also very mistrustful of people, especially men. And just we were both just quite afraid of the world, I think. And I was very, very worried about what other people thought and about being judged. And with animals, there's this wonderful thing where they just don't judge you and you don't have to worry what they think about. Like, Emma thinks I am wonderful, you know, and that's not going to change. And it's a very sort of reassuring sort of presence to have, you know. I never thought, oh, you know, what's she thinking about me or she'll know that this has happened to me or anything like that with her. It's very, very unconditional. I've definitely, well, I'm so much better than I was, you know, I'm a lot more confident again. A lot. She's made me happier, like we've made each other happier. And part of that is just time and counselling and stuff, but a lot of that is to do with Emma. I think Emma has been as good, if not better, than any of the counsellors that I've had. And that is something Clive agrees with. So I think, Ava, that the the loving bond that you can have with a dog can be therapeutically tremendously useful. And this has been shown in studies, for example, on service people with PTSD or other people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that the unbounded, unquestioning love that dogs show towards people is a very helpful way of lifting people up that there is a this attachment that i talked about it's a two-way street people feel reassurance in the company of their loving dog i was thinking about this the other day i had to have a medical procedure and i thought this would have been a lot easier to take if my dog zephos could have been here with me and you know the world that we live in the world we have created in the last century is a very lonely world it's very interesting that at the beginning of the 20th century censuses in the UK, in the US, in other first world nations, there was no such thing as a person living alone. Single person households were basically zero in 1901. Whereas in the world we live in today, in the most recent censuses after 2020, there are cities, San Francisco, you know, uh, Copenhagen, there are many cities in the world where more than half of all households are single person households. And loneliness has a tremendous health cost. And so I was saying about how dogs have adapted and made themselves indispensable in all the different phases of human life since we and they got together. And what they do today, their primary function for most of us is just to guard us against loneliness and to provide the security, the emotional security that comes from having an attachment figure on hand. And as Clive mentioned, and Beth can attest, healing can go both ways. Having Emma and seeing that she was afraid of lots of the things I was afraid of too, and seeing her get better was kind of inspiring, you know, like, you know, she can do it, I can do it. It kind of felt like we were in it together. And in a way, sort of looking after her while she was having, you know, a hard time adjusting, kind of was also looking after me, like, Yeah, she was the best £125 I've ever spent. (laughs) I want to give a huge thanks to Beth for sharing such a personal story with us that so perfectly illustrates the power of our relationship with our pets. Thanks also to Emma for being so well-behaved during recording and to Clive Wynne too for his brilliant insights. That's it for this week's Focus episode. Join us in two weeks' time where we'll explore the neuroscience of touch. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. 
How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by me, Eva Higginbotham, and executive produced by Neil Cowling and Michaela Hallam. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.